G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music, and more. I'm John Merch, the producer and host of, and this episode, let's dive straight into our feature guest. Ukulele and the blues are the sweet spots of Manitoba Hull. With a baritone voice and a bus driver career in the past, Hal nowadays, between touring wide and far, is renovating an 120-year-old home in a place called Shelburne. Their latest album is Vintage Blend, a collection of reimagined and rearranged works for cigar box guitar, ukulele and slide guitar. As you'll hear in this chat, they have a huge passion for uke. On the line from Nova Scotia, Hal joins Radio Notes for a chat. Thank you very much for joining Radio Notes. Well, thank you for having me. Your first ukulele, which I believe was a 1955 Martin Soprano, who gave it to you? Well, it was my grandfather, and uh, we were moving him from his uh, uh, lifelong home that he built himself into an assisted care home, uh, him and my grandmother, and I found it in the basement. And he had never played the ukulele, as far as I knew. He was a piano player. But I found this 1955 Martin, and uh, I knew the name Martin, but I, this was in the center of Canada. I had never seen a ukulele to save my life. I asked him about it. He told me what it was, and he said I could have it if I learned to play it. I always looked up to my grandfather. He was uh, a prominent uh, male figure in my life. And so I agreed and accepted that, and I said, okay, I'll do it. And it changed everything. At that point, I was just a guitar player who had learned to play by ear. And when I got the ukulele, I had to actually learn to read sheet music and learn music theory so that I could play this instrument that had no audio references. I couldn't just put on a record and go, what are people doing? Was he the only male figure at the time or were there others that shaped the life of Hull in those earlier years? He was the prominent, but there was also my uncle who was a drummer in a rock band. Those were the two uh, male figures I had growing up. And my grandfather was a carpenter by trade and a piano player part-time through most of his life. And uh, so he, he was a huge inspiration in, in terms of what I wanted to be when I grew up. Describe for us what it was like visiting your grandfather in that house. I grew up right beside my grandfather's house. We were raised in a little trailer mobile home right that was just adjacent and so he and my grandmother would take care of us after school I say us is my brother my older brother and I and my mom was a single mom who worked by all accounts uh, uh, an idyllic perfect childhood it was a small small town we had a big yard my grandfather planted lots of trees there's a lot of grass and places to play he was a carpenter so there was this extensive wood pile there was scraps to build forts out of there was tools to bang away at stuff it was perfect for young boys what was the first tool you picked up gosh that's hard to say i would bet it's a hammer um i'm sure that uh as a young boy my my grandfather let me bang nails into a piece of wood thinking i was doing something as he was working on a real project one of the great regrets of my life in that in in that sense is that when i had an opportunity to learn a lot from him about carpentry and about things that, that i'm passionate about now I wasn't interested, so I didn't really do a lot with him in that way. Do you get a sense that he's looking over your shoulder now that you are more creative in that particular pursuit? Oh, yeah. Actually, I know he is. I believe he's he's looking down and smiling at the ukulele and the fact that I play it and that I now build cigar box guitars and, and I'm renovating an old house. I mean, I think these are things that he'd be very proud of. 
120 years old and going strong? By all accounts, uh, it's a shack, and I, I don't want to uh, uh, sound too immodest. I mean, it's an old home that had been neglected, um, but what it had was good bones and a good roof. And so literally every surface in the house has, has needed and still needs in many places uh, attention which I thought was just perfect for a guy who spends most of his life traveling is that I can slowly fix this thing up to make it a beautiful home. But in the meantime, I'm warm and cozy when I am here. One of the uh, uh, principles that guided me when I bought the house was knowing my nature, which is to be primarily fairly lazy. If I bought a house where something worked well, but I didn't really like it, it would probably never change. But if I bought a house that needed everything to be fixed or adjusted or whatever, then even if it took me time, it would end up being what I wanted it to be. It's also the case of fresh eyes, is it not? Do you get that every time you come back from a tour that you might look down the corridor and go, actually, the dining room, that's the next thing? Well, it's funny that you say that because my manager, Nicole, has been here visiting my house a few times. And there was one project over the last 10 years that I'd talked about doing over and over again, never really got started. And that was that I have my upstairs is arranged. There are two rooms that are connected. So you have to go into one to get into the other kind of story. There's my small office was a separate room. I was uh, thinking of closing the wall between the two rooms that were connected and opening a wall between my office and the other room because I used them in conjunction and then the other room was my bedroom. And one day she says to me, why don't you just move your bedroom into the small room? Because all you do is sleep there. And of course, I'd never considered this in 10 years. So I did that. And so now I'm sitting in the big room that used to be my bedroom that is now my office and it is connected to my TV room, which is, of course, what I always did. <laughs> so fresh eyes is exactly the answer there. She, she saw it in a way that I didn't and therefore made my life better once again. Do you have a good view out to the sympathetics? I have a bit of a view into my backyard. Um, there's some trees and a little stream, but it isn't a good view. But part of the problem is that my house was built in a time when there weren't standards. And so I'm right up against the road. The room where I have the best view would be now my bedroom. And I can look out from there onto the harbor, the beautiful view. But if I'm going to do any kind of recording or lessons, I do lessons through Skype and things like that. There's always trucks going by and you can hear people talking on the streets and everything. So it's actually better on the backside with the worst view. Shelbourne, what's it like? Beautiful town. It was founded in 1783 by United Empire loyalists. So people that were loyal to King George and were expelled from the United States. I'm probably not the best person to talk about it. It was a prime colony in its day and we have about 13,000 people in the county and about uh, 1,500 in town. Primary industry in this area is fishing, notably lobster fishing. Other than that, it's just a great community full of artists, creative craftspeople. There is a, a wonderful group of painters here and everything, partly because we have such a scenic area. We have a, a beautiful harbor, one of the only harbors in the world where there's only development on one side. So it's a 12-mile harbor to the ocean. And when I stand in town and look across the harbor, there is nothing but trees and forest. It is not developed at all. So it's quite lovely. Been there for about nine or ten years, but does it still yes. give, does it still give you a sense of home? Well, actually, it's funny you mention that. I, I was raised in the center of Canada in the province of Manitoba, which is where the name comes from. It's uh, the town I grew up in is about 
40 or 50 kilometers from the longitudinal center of North America. So it's about as central in land mass as you can get. And now I live over on the East Coast on the ocean. And yeah, I've only lived here 10 years. But as soon as I arrived, I knew I was home. This place absolutely gives me every feeling of home I'd ever looked for. I think I belonged here my whole life. That gives a sense that possibly water is more in your bones than you may have initially have thought, maybe when you were younger? Absolutely. Which, it's ironic that you touch on that because my previous album was called Blues is in the Water. And Nicole and I, when we were recording that record, we discovered that every single song had some reference to water in it. And of course, that is definitely a part of my life. And my ancestors were... uh, uh, Nordic uh, explorers. They would have been called Vikings by most people. In fact, some of my direct ancestors were the first settlers in North America on in Lanso Meadows, which is in Labrador now. It's always been in Labrador, I guess. It just wasn't called that then. We go back a long way as seafaring people, but I certainly had, didn't grow up by the sea and know nothing about it other than it makes me feel good. But it also must connect with you now that you're such a traveler of the music kind the traveling part absolutely when i was uh really young and starting out in the music business i used to get terribly lonely on the road and then one day it just occurred to me that if the worst thing i had to do with my day was travel somewhere that people wanted to pay me money to play music it really wasn't a bad day and then from that it went on to having friends all over the world and seeing the world i never imagined as a young man that i would actually see the world I used to uh, uh, admire and be envious of the people who managed to take trips around the world and backpack in cities. I've got a friend who my whole time I've known him has taken off from trips in Europe and wandered around and, and I never thought I would. And now after the last 10 years, that's exactly what I've been doing and it's quite remarkable. What did you think you'd be doing as a teenager then, Hal? Oh, gosh. There were many careers. I mean, I think I always dreamt of travel. I remember the first thing I really ever wanted to be was a pilot, was the longing to not be in one place. You know, it was to to see more of the world and of my area where I was. And then, uh, you know, over time that faded away and I did the kind of things that every person does to get along. I had a progression of jobs in retail, of uh, selling electronics, and uh, I worked for a while as a graphic designer at a print shop. My only formal education after high school, after my basic education, was a audio-video post-production diploma. So basically, I learned how to make television, but I never worked in the television industry. I just spent a bunch of time learning about it. Having said that, you now do tutorials on Patreon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question that having the skills and the confidence to uh, work with software and cameras has made a huge difference in what I do. And just as the time spent as a graphic designer has saved me all kinds of money and given me a creative outlet for doing the artwork for my CDs and posters and web design, all of that kind of stuff. Sure, absolutely. What was it like being a bus driver in Winnipeg? You know, it's a hard job. I actually quite liked the job at the time. I lived about five or ten minutes walk from the transit garage where the buses, where I picked up my buses. And the shifts were split shift, meant I would drive the early morning rush hour, and I would go home for a few hours, then I would drive the afternoon rush hour. But it was really kind of neat to go and work for a few hours, go home, have lunch, play some music, watch a movie, do whatever I wanted to do, then go back to work and drive a little bit and then come home for the evening. Did you ever sing on the bus? Ironically, I did sing a little bit on the bus. In fact, there's 
one day I actually took a ukulele on the bus with me too. And on my rest breaks, which were, were not many, I would sit and strum. Definitely a little interesting for sure. You can play the guitar, but you choose to play the ukulele. What's so special about the uke for you? It comes down to a combination of things. The first one is that I have a fairly low voice. I used to sing a lot in falsetto when I was younger, and that was an effort to bring my voice above the guitar. And I didn't really realize I was doing that, but as, as time went on, I, I, my voice was deepening, and I would end up singing in the middle of the guitar register, and so arranging parts was challenging, to say the least. And when I started playing the ukulele, what I noticed is Everything I played on the ukulele, even the the deepest notes I could get, were above my vocal range. So it was an interesting juxtaposition instead of having the instrument below and the voice high to flip it. And then I really loved the challenge of making it do things that people said it couldn't do. As a guitar player, I played a lot of blues and a lot of I was a slide blues guitar player, and I did a lot of that kind of stuff. And as soon as I started playing the ukulele, I started pushing it into this territory where it wasn't just a strumming instrument for me. It it did do a lot of lead instrumentation, a lot of melody playing. I found ways to get more bottom end, more bass out of it than uh, people expect it to have. All of those things together gave me this instrument that was really challenging creatively and inspiring. Over time, I, it kind of took over for me. Uh, when I first started playing, I would play a, a lot but I was still a guitar player. I would go out on tour with my guitar and I wouldn't have a ukulele. I'd come home, though, and my guitar would sit in its case in the corner the whole time I was home and I would play my ukulele. After a while, that just sort of took over and it became the thing that I was doing. And friends started suggesting perhaps I should be showing that to the audience instead of trying to be a guitar player all the time. And so I did. And it just took over. It started off where I would play one ukulele song in a night as a bit of a change of pace, something different to the show. And then I got asked for another and another. And pretty soon I was playing ukulele all night with one or two guitar songs as a change of pace. And at that point, I had just started to think I should just put the guitar away. It wasn't quite immediate on that, but as the idea grew and, uh, you know, I started talking with my manager, Nicole, about it. We made the decision that that was the right course of action. And that led to everything that people know about me today. The new album, Vintage Blend, which has just been released in 2019, October thereof, looks at a reimagining. In my early days, I think every artist begins with false steps. Recorded a lot of stuff in the early years, from, in this case, from 2002 to 2006, many of which are tracks that were not recorded to their best potential or not really heard by anybody. I mean, there's... There's one CD that we chose tracks from that there were only 100 copies ever produced. And so even though I played some of the songs live and people liked them, there was never a way for anyone to own these tracks. And so we sat down, Nicole and I, and we selected a bunch of tunes that we felt were the best stuff on it. Some are songs that were more popular in in later variations. And we reimagined them all for ukulele and for cigar box guitar. So it's really a combination of the two different things changing the way they were done to something that more reflects who I am as an artist today. What is that relationship like professionally with the manager? When we started working together, the first thing we did a lot of was career visioning, where we sat down and talked about where I was, where I wanted to be, what were my goals and dreams. And then we would we would put together plans to get there, you know, and we would make decisions. And over time, it's grown to be my most trusted relationship. 
She listens to anything that I think of, how no matter how crazy or, or strange it is, and she helps me find the truth and the exciting good ideas in it and helps me to see what the best choices are for the moment. And then, of course, she's also got a great ear for harmonies, and she's been involved in the production as a, at a producer level of a couple of my projects, helping me get the vocals right, helping me get the arrangements good and the order of tracks together. She was instrumental on Vintage Blend from beginning to end, and I can honestly say the album wouldn't have been made without her. I can imagine as an artist sometimes it can be a bit tricky to know how things are sounding as you go along. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the biggest problem that I have is that I get bogged down in the muck and mire of my life. Once I'm booking shows and touring or I'm running around, I'm constantly bombarded by all sorts of ideas on all sides and challenges and everything like that. I lose sense of the big picture of what we're trying to achieve. And so I might have a a bad night somewhere where I'm playing and for whatever reason, the audience doesn't get what I'm doing or they get one thing that I'm doing in my head will start to brew the idea that I have to go that way suddenly. And without someone like Nicole sitting over top of me going, well, hold on, Hal. How does this fit into what you're really doing here? Kind of like the dog chasing a squirrel, you know? It's got full attention, full attention, squirrel. And that's sort of how my life goes, is that I'm working away and then a shiny thing pops up. I lose focus for a minute. And she brings me back around to what I was doing and what was we know works and helps me to make solid decisions that way. Let's talk about dogs. What's your favorite dog? All. I'm a real fan of all dogs. I did have for a brief time a pug. I'm a very big fan of small dogs because I I like the fact that they think they're big, that they uh, are much more cuddly, but I love all dogs. Honestly, there's a sort of a, a joke thing that people say that the, you know, The more people I know, the more I love my dog. The truth is, if I see a dog, I smile. When I walk by a dog on the road, I immediately say hi. I mean, I don't necessarily bend down and pet it, but I absolutely say hi. I acknowledge every single dog. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit dog crazy in that way. I see people walking down the street with their dog and I go, oh, I want to have a dog. And you know as a touring musician that that's not necessarily the best decision as well. It absolutely isn't. That's why I don't have one now, but I, I want one. I guess I'm looking forward to the day I retire, which I don't know when that'll be. Maybe I'll fall dead before that happens. But when I can get a dog to be my companion and we can uh, just hang around and play music and walk by the harbor together. Hi, I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly, and you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music and more. You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on Radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Merch and Radio Notes. We're currently in a conversation with Manitoba Hull. How easy is it to make a cigar box uke? Let's talk the basic principle because i think when as soon as you start getting into specifics is where as they say the devil is in the details all stringed instruments are essentially a piece of wood running a certain length with something on the end for the strings to attach to so that you can tune them up and a bridge running across some sort of resonant box now 
cigar boxes do not make the absolute best resonant boxes, but there's something cool and funky about using something that was built for one purpose for another. If you're talking in a cigar, in a guitar sense, just putting some strings across a carriage bolt at one end with some machine heads across another carriage bolt over the box, and you've got an instrument that you can play. Now, when you want to get into something that you fret and that plays well, there's a little bit more work involved. Fretting is an exact mathematical science. You need to put the frets in exactly the right place. You need to learn how to cut into the fretboard the exact depth for the fret wires to sit so that they'll sit well and that you won't have high spots or things like that that make it, the playing of it uncomfortable for the artist. So there's a bit of work. What I like about it is it, there's a reward factor, you know, that you put in the time to do this. And you come up with something that plays well and, if you're lucky, looks really good. A nice change of pace from the constant effort of my life to play an instrument well. I, I don't want to sound like I'm frustrated with that or, or tired of that. But the reality is you, you work really hard to be good. You practice all the time. The last thing you want to do when you want to break is to play more music. At least this is my truth. I love about building is that it's something that is highly creative that uses different parts of my brain and keeps my hands busy. And in the end, I get the reward of this beautiful piece of folk art that makes music. And it gets us back to your grandfather, does it not? That of actually crafting carve the necks myself and uh, do all that kind of work. So there is a, a certain amount of, of the wood of and the building of, but I, I think my grandfather would have really enjoyed this. He was a, a piano tuner and re he did house carpentry as well. So there was always instruments being rebuilt in his garage. He built all the furniture in the house that he lived in with my grandmother. I have some of his pieces of furniture in my house now. I think he would have been really intrigued and interested in, in building cigar box guitars. Although I think he would have listened to them and thought, well, that sounds like crap. Let's build a real instrument because, you know, people have figured out how to make bodies that sound good. I do think he would have liked the process for sure. Well, let's talk about the quote, sounds like crap, unquote. There, <laughs> is there some sense of enjoyment out of that as well, that you know that it could go one way, but if you do the right thing, you'll hit hit the target? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, for me, it's a constant learning process. I think every time I finish an instrument, I learn something else about instrument making and about making in this particular uh, milieu. Often, what makes or breaks a cigar box instrument, in my estimation, is tiny decisions that are made at the very beginning. They translate along the lines. If you have made a mistake or cut a corner on something that you didn't even think you were cutting a corner on, it'll have a dramatic effect at the end of the line. That's not to say that it's this anal pursuit. It really isn't. I mean, you could build a cigar box guitar in a matter of two or three hours that as a slide instrument plays, does everything you'd ever want it to be. But if you're trying to make that exact playing instrument and you get one uh, piece uh, an eighth of an inch off, the whole thing won't play in tune. And you might not know that till the end. So there's a certain attention to detail that's required. Think about all the details before you begin. Certainly the important details, such as where the bridge is going to live, how far that is from 
the nut on the neck, how that is all going to fit together as mechanically in that sense. And then if you have the wood shop and the tools, there are ways to take cigar boxes and make them even better. There are some people out there, for example, that take the lid off the cigar box and they run it through a planer to thin it down like a guitar top. And that makes for a much more resonant, appealing sounding instrument. I guess not to sound like I think I'm better than that or whatever. My intention has never been to make beautiful sounding instruments. I, I have I know many luthiers uh, who make beautiful instruments that are visibly very beautiful to look at, great characteristics, lovely wood, great workmanship and finish all around. The tone is incredible. My whole idea is to take this cigar box and I like the idea of taking something that was used for something not necessarily good for people and, and turning it into something that makes people happy. If you can take the raw materials and look beyond its aesthetics to what it does is functionally and then push it beyond it's great when we started talking about cigar box guitars nicole and i one of the first projects we really wanted to do i wanted to make a record just with cigar box instruments and we had this idea that i still believe in that there's a huge financial barrier of entry to being a recording artist today now of course that barrier has come down a lot in the later years with digital technology but just to be able to walk into a studio to record a song. A musician needs a certain amount of money for their instrument. They need to have been able to spend years practicing, all these things. The ultimate end is that just to get started, you need to have a significant cash investment into your craft. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think there's a lot of creative people who don't have money in the world. So you can take a cigar box guitar. I can build one without accounting for costs of labor. I can build one for about 50 to $60 with all the materials. And that will play as well as some of my more expensive ukuleles. Now, it won't necessarily sound as good, but you put a pickup on that, you plug it into a little amp, and you've got something that can make great music. I really wanted to do this project where I built all the instruments that I performed the record on and that every instrument cost me less than $100 to make. We never quite got that project off the ground, but the idea of it sort of carried through vintage blend in that I did record a lot of instrumentation of the record on cigar box instruments that I, I had made, including a two-string bass that I made. We kind of captured elements of it for sure. Well over 15 years' experience as a musician, you're setting the example on your own records and knocking it out the park by doing so as well, by saying this is how it can be done. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I guess I had hoped that people would see that, but it, it was always more just following the creative muse, you know, and the challenge. One of the things about a ukulele as an instrument to make music on is that it's actually a very difficult instrument to play well because it has certain limitations of scale. You have about an octave and a half of notes. Everything can start to sound the same unless you're really creative in how you put it together. I like the challenge of that, and that led me to using three- and four-string instruments where there are more limitations placed upon you. One of the keys to creativity is limitation. If you have unlimited options in front of you, it can actually stifle your creativity because you don't really know what to do. But instead, you take away all the options and say, now do something with this. Suddenly, you find yourself being creative and finding a solution to something that shouldn't be possible with what you have. Which ukulele musicians, apart from your good self, should we be listening to to get a good feel of how the ukulele should be played? 
Oh, gosh. That is a difficult question because I think it comes down to a fairly subjective standard of what you think a ukulele should do. One of my favorite musicians is uh, another Canadian, James Hill. I think he is definitely one of the best ukulele players on the planet. He has a, a facility of using the instrument as a whole instrument. One of his most famous pieces is an arrangement of Billie Jean, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, where he plays the bass rhythm, a chord rhythm, and the percussion of the piece all at once with one hand, without a looper or any other tools. It's incredible the kind of things he's done with an instrument. But if you want to look at the instrument from a traditional standpoint and you know where the music that was originally made on it, there's some great players out of Hawaii. Uh, Aldrin Guerrero is one of my favorites, and he's tied in with a whole series of, of great players on the islands that are, are incredible. But then going to the classical world, there was a gentleman who's now passed away named John King, who did a lot of classical ukulele and played Campanella. And uh, there's a woman in the UK who is taking up that mantle. Her name is Samantha Muir, M-U-I-R. And she's a fantastic classical player. I mean, her whole thing is these classical arrangements for the four-stringed instrument. And then if your whole thing is jazz, a duo from the West Coast of the United States, Craig Chi and Sarah Maisel. They do a lot of jazz arrangements and things like that. How do you see the ukulele into the future and the future of music? Well, one of the things that I hope and have hoped for many years is that in North America specifically, much less so in the rest of the world, but in North America specifically, the ukulele is seen by an awful lot of people still as a joke or a kid's instrument. And there's a lot more people who are interested in playing it. And I'm kind of hoping that as far as the future goes, it'll lose that stigma and it'll just be seen as an instrument instead of a novelty, you know, instead of a toy where, oh, I'm going to play ukulele, ha ha, you know, or that's really fun and cute. He plays ukulele. I want it to just be, he's a great musician. Wow. This person is a fantastic artist. Oh yeah. Well, they happen to play ukulele. That That's what I hope. I hope that the growing crop of young people who are playing it, enjoying it, just pursue it as an instrument that is worthy of performance and play and recognition of the instrument moves beyond novelty into just being yet another thing. How your latest record is called Vintage Blend. I'd like you to choose a number off the album and tell us the story behind it. This Condition. This was a song that took me a little bit of time to write. I co-wrote it with a friend of mine named Steve Johns in Winnipeg. The reason it became a co-write was that I had written the first verse, the lead-in and what the basic introduction to the song, and then had nothing. And I sat on it for about two years, continuing to try to write something. Uh, initial lyrics and the initial verse was so compelling to me. I knew this was something, but I didn't know where it was going. So the lyric starts... 40 days and 40 nights of dust bowl tears and neon lights. She held a bottle to her lips to drown the pain. And the love she had was sanctified, was washed in the blood and then baptized. This, this verse really stuck with me, and I, but I didn't know where to go. Steve came along and we started talking about it. And we realized that there was a bit of a modern retelling of the Mary Jesus mythology uh, in it, in that Mary was a single mom who had to deal with all the problems that single mothers have to deal with today, not having enough money. The point was there was this idea just sitting there within it, and we took it that way, and it, it became this powerful metaphor for love and how even when you're broken, you're 
really worthy of love and you're worthy of support. And uh, I was really pleased when we completed that. And uh, the song hung around for a lot of years. It was performed in various states. But I do believe that this recording is the most powerful recording we ever made of it. We added some background voices as a, a local friend of mine here in Shelburne who is uh, uh, an alto singer, and she did this amazing humming part that is, you, you have to hear it to believe it. Her name is Mary Howe, wonderful recording session for that track, I have to say. There was this silence. The, everybody involved in the project was just sitting there vibrating, but not saying a word. It was quite something to experience. Had your mother ever heard you sing or play the uke? She says she's my number one fan. My brother also says he's my number one fan. So those two have to fight it out for who really gets that role. I'm going to give it to my mom, though. Uh, yeah, she quite likes it. She's a, a big supporter of me. And there's actually a story going back to 2005 when I was uh, still trying to put some sort of full-time career together. And I got invited to an international ukulele festival actually out here in Nova Scotia. So I was living in Winnipeg at the time. And there's a festival out here called the Ukulele Cayley in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. And they invited me to come and play for that same weekend. Uh, Steve Johns, who helped me write th this condition, was getting married. And he had invited me to be to his wedding. And so I was in this dilemma for a few days trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I talked to my mom without a second hesitation. She says, well, you have to go. I said, but what about, you know, Steve and his wedding and family, you know, relationship and things like that? And they mean something to me. And uh, that she says, yes, but you don't know when you're going to get invited again. Whether or not it would have been different, I have to credit my mom with the fact that I developed my first fan base in a big way outside of Winnipeg by, by coming to the ukulele Kaylee and meeting players out here and audience seeing me play. In early October, you went to the eighth one of those. I did. As a matter of fact, I was back at the old haunt with the playing and teaching with them once again. It was quite lovely. And did your mother end up going proxy to Steve Johns' wedding or not? No, she did not. But Steve, he understood as well. When I told him, he said, well, yeah, you have to go. And he was completely fine that I didn't come to his wedding. He gave all of his groomsmen ukuleles, which I thought was an interesting choice. Photos of all of them holding their ukuleles by the Assiniboine River in Winnipeg. When did you and Steve Johns first meet? We met, I was working at a music industry association in Winnipeg called Manitoba Music, which was a center for business development for artists. And Steve came in because he wanted to be a songwriter. I love the way he tells this story, so I'll endeavor to tell it the way he does. He came in to consult with me. I was the member services rep, so I was the guy that just about everybody talked to. And he told me that this is what he wanted. And we started talking. I basically did everything I could to discourage him. Told him, you know, he should look somewhere else. I mean, I, apparently he said I was uh, passionate. But through the course of that visit, what I discovered, and uh, I believe he did too because we became fast friends, was that our sense of humor was oddly very compatible. That I would make jokes that he was right on top of. We would talk in song lyrics sometimes you know like he would just start saying some esoteric song lyric that i knew and would follow up with an equally esoteric and have a conversation and and it still goes on to this day i don't know exactly how that works he's about 10 years younger than me but we were separated at birth or something who's your favorite comedian how oh what a great question i don't know that i have a favorite i think i can answer that easier by saying what i what i don't like I, I really have trouble with any kind of humor um, that has to make fun of someone or essentially be hurtful. 
in order to be funny. So I don't really like shock comics or people that prey on stereotypes like that. I prefer intelligent stuff. So I might, I think right now I would say uh, Jerry Seinfeld is right up there. Although I, it's hard to even point a finger at it. I think I just like funny things. I like good comedy writing more than comedians. One of the great things about your question, not that you specifically asked this, is I have long held that if a songwriter wants to become a better performer, there are two people they need to watch and study, and that is comedians and magicians and not musicians. Those two people hold an audience with very little in the way of artifice. You know, a comedian stands up there by themselves with a microphone telling a story, and they have to hold an audience's attention, and they have to craft their language in such a way that leads to their final point, and a good one is amazing. And a magician has all the tricks of sleight of hand and distraction to get away with the illusions or deceptions they're trying to pull off. I do believe that that's also an important skill for a musician to learn is that there are sometimes things you have to do that distract from the show and you have to find a way to distract the audience so you can do them and have that be fundamentally part of what you do. Hal, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, John. Manitoba Hal. Online they can be found at manitobahal.com with Vintage Blend, their latest album. Next episode will be our last for the year of 2019 and it'll be the 50th episode as a truck goes past loudly. So it'll be a collection of bits and pieces, including some outtakes to make up the time of these 29 and 58 minute episodes. Just some of the conversations end up on the editing floor. It's not that they weren't worth listening to. It was just a time factor. I'll be sharing some of those with you next time here on Radio Notes. Thanks very much to our feature guest this week, Mantoba Hal. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia.